Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45, and the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, Immediately made his disciples get into the boats and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This is the word of the Lord. A young woman in the, in the Netherlands named Noah Pethoven died last week in her home. And apparently she had stopped eating and drinking water in order to commit suicide, which by itself on the surface is is tragic enough. But this story actually garnered international attention because it was discovered that she had requested to be euthanized by the medical professionals in her country because she no longer wanted to live. Euthanasia is the Greek word that literally means good death. And, And for us laymen, what that means is assisted suicide. And it was made legal in the Netherlands in 2001. And when it was made legal, it was supposed to be reserved only for special circumstances. Like like when someone is elderly and they're suffering from a debilitating, painful, incurable, terminal disease. right? And that they were then at the end of their lives. And it was seen that that would be a compassionate way to help them, you know, to end their suffering, to euthanize them, to, to kill them. And and many people, particularly Christians, rejected this notion. They rejected the notion of playing God and and, and killing people before their time. And they also predicted that if assisted suicide was made legal, even in rare cases like this, that eventually the rules would change, as they always do, and and, and then euthanasia would would be not restricted just to the elderly anymore. And they were right. Because now in the Netherlands, a person can be euthanized as early as the age of 12. 12 years old. As long as the parents consent to them dying. But it's no longer restricted to people with terminal diseases, though. People with chronic health care issues, people in chronic pain can be euthanized because they don't want to suffer anymore. And not just people who suffer physically, but people who suffer mentally. People who who battle depression resulting from trauma can be euthanized. And that's why this young woman's story became internationally alone. She initially had requested to be euthanized when she was 16 years old, but they denied it because she didn't have her parents' consent. She didn't talk to her parents about it. But then when she was 17, then she was now legally able to obtain permission to, to, to become euthanized. And she got permission, but... She actually had already taken matters in her own hands and had stopped eating and drinking water. And so she was not euthanized in a hospital, but, but actually died naturally from, from her own lack of food and, and, and water at home. 
And she was 17 years old. 17 years of, years of age. And when you look at her pictures in, in, on social media, she looks surprising like a normal teenager. But for some reason, she desperately wanted to die. And, and what we need to understand is, is it's not because of physical pain, right, that she wanted to die. It was because of emotional trauma. She was molested at the age of 11 and 12, and then she was raped at the age of 14. And this left her emotionally scarred, and, and she battled horrible depression as a result. And she even wrote a book about her struggle to, in order to, to help try to cope. But for her, the emotional pain was just too much to bear. And so, so in an article on June 5th, it was reported that in an Instagram post written a day before her death, she wrote, maybe this might come as a surprise to some, given my post about hospitalization, but my plan has been there for a long time, and it's not impulsive. Noah said that she'd been fighting for years and, and was now drained, and, and she felt that she had never really been alive, but instead was just surviving. And she says, I quit eating and drinking for a while now. And after many discussions and evaluations, it was decided to let me go because my suffering is unbearable. Posthoven wrote, letting, I mean, love is letting go in this case. Love is letting someone kill themselves is the implication of what she's saying. Now, when we read a story like this, I think the normal question for us to ask is how do we get here because euthanasia is not just legal in in the netherlands it's legal in many states in the united states right now how do we get to a place where we're we're, we're we're helping someone commit suicide is seen as compassionate be they elderly and in pain or young and emotionally traumatized how do we get to a place where the compassionate thing and, and the loving solution to suffering in this life is to kill them because that's what she's saying here. The loving thing to do is to let me go. How did we get here? Well, the answer, very simply, can be summed up in one compound word, and that word is simply worldview. It's how they see the world. The reason why people can embrace the death is because and the reason why people see suicide as preferable to suffering, and the reason why people will see euthanasia as loving and compassionate is, is because of their worldview. It's how they see the world around them. Now you might be wondering, what is a worldview? Well, as James Anderson, writing for Ligonier Ministry, says, a worldview, as it, it itself suggests, is an overall view of the world. Right? It's not a physical view, but rather it's a, it's a philosophical view, an all-encompassing perspective on, on everything that exists and, and, and matters to us. He goes on to say, a person's worldview represents his most fundamental beliefs and assumptions about the universe that he inhabits. It's really, right, quite simply, how we see and understand and process the world around us. You make decisions because of your worldview, of what you believe about the world around you. It's how we answer the foundational questions like, who and what are we? Where do we come from? Why are we even here? Questions like, where, if anywhere, are we headed? And what, what's the meaning and the purpose of life? What's the nature of the afterlife? And what counts as a good life here and now? A worldview is simply how we see and understand and process the world. And everyone 
Whether they believe it or not, or know it or not, or want to embrace it or not, everyone has a worldview. You see, the reason why this young girl thought her best solution to her suffering was suicide and euthanasia is because of her worldview. Growing up in a secular society, she more than likely had a secular worldview. In fact, when I read all the articles that I read, not one mention was made of her parents' faith. Not one mention was, was made to appeal to God. There was no like reasoning with her because, because God created her. There was no faith in her world at all. She, she had a secular worldview. And so her, that means her answers to these questions probably would go like this. Who am I? Just a highly evolved animal who was brought into existence by random chance processes. Because that's what a secular worldview is without God. Where did I come from? Well, I came from my parents, but ultimately, I came from random outworking and naturalistic processes. Well, why am I here? Well, I'm here by chance and by accident. Where am I headed? Well, I'm headed for the grave, and I will disappear entirely because there is no God. Well, what's the purpose of life? There is no purpose to life. There is none. All of life in the universe is accidental, is an accidental outwork and random chance processes, which means there is no meaning, there is no purpose. What's the nature of the afterlife? Well, there is no afterlife. You just die, and then you're gone. Well, then what counts for a good life here and now? The only thing that counts, if there is no purpose and, no, and there's no afterlife, the only thing that counts right now is just to be happy. And if your suffering outweighs your happiness, then there's not even any reason to live. That was her worldview. And, and the fact of the matter is, if that worldview was true, if what she believed is true, then she's right. There is no point to going on. There's none. Because ultimately life is meaningless. And it means her suffering and her pain is meaningless. And so the loving thing to do would be to end her suffering if that were a true worldview. You see, from a secular worldview, euthanasia makes sense. Abortion makes sense in that worldview. The destruction of the institution of marriage makes sense from that worldview because it's all meaningless anyway. And so suffering ultimately has no purpose at all in that worldview. But from a Christian worldview, all of those answers are completely different. From a Christian worldview, the question of who am I? I am a human being created in the likeness of God. See the difference? Immediately, it all changes with one answer. Where did I come from? I came from my parents, but ultimately it was created by God himself. Why am I here? Because God decreed and ordained for me to be alive. I am here because of his will. Where am I headed? Well, if I repent and put my faith in Christ, I'm headed for eternity in heaven with him. What's the, what's the purpose of life? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. What's the nature of the afterlife then? Well, everyone who, who believes and repents, they will live forever in the presence of God. But everyone else will live forever as well. They just will live forever by their own choice in hell. Then what counts as a good life now? A good life now is a life that's lived for the glory of God by faith in Jesus Christ, depending upon him and obedient to his commands, no matter what happens in this life. That's a good life. From, from a Christian worldview, euthanasia makes no sense at all since, since, since there is more to life than just our comfort and living a pain-free, problem-free existence. 
From the Christian worldview, abortion makes no sense because every person, no matter how small they are, is created in the image of the living God by the living God. And from a Christian worldview, the destruction of the institution of marriage makes no sense because because it was created by God for his glory and for the good of all mankind. And from a Christian worldview, there is even purpose in our suffering. You see, as a Christian, our suffering is not pointless. Our suffering is not meaningless. And, and, And there is actually hope even in our deepest suffering. And that is the worldview that those who trust in Christ have. And that's the worldview we're going to see in the text today. So turn with me again to Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45. Mark says, immediately, right after, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, when he dismissed the crowd. Now, what you might not realize is that we are at a huge turning point in the story here. The crowds, these people, are beginning to understand who Jesus is. They're starting to figure it out. John chapter 6 says, when when the people saw the sign that he had done, the sign of him feeding 15,000 people with a few pieces of bread and some fish, when they saw that sign, they said, this indeed is the prophet who came into the world. They were beginning to understand that Jesus is the Messiah, which is absolutely true, but they had the wrong idea about him being the Messiah. You see, they, like the apostles, believed that the Messiah would come into the world and become the king of Israel, right? And that they would then cast out the Roman army, and then he would then restore the nation of Israel back to world prominence again, and then they would live all happily ever after. That's what they understood. And Jesus knew that this was what they were thinking, and he knew that they were about to take him by force and make him a king. That's what John says. But that's not why Jesus came. Right? But they couldn't see that, they couldn't understand that. Jesus, then knowing their hearts, he sends the apostles away, and then he dismisses the crowd before this can get out of hand. And what this reveals for us, then, is that is in this story, Jesus has reached a critical turning point. People are figuring out who Jesus is, or at least who they think he is as the Messiah. Right? And it's, that's in this context, then, is, is for, for Jesus to do what he's about to do next. And what he's about to do is he's about to reveal himself as clearly as possible to the apostles. There's going to be a turning point in their faith in him. The next few days in the ministry of Christ are going to be going to really change. And so notice what it says here. It says, after he had taken leave of them, he went upon the mountain to pray. We see Jesus again at a critical point in his mission. And what does he do? He finds a way to get by himself with God the Father and pray. And we see that through the Gospels over and over and over again. Jesus, God in the flesh, God the Son, made it a priority to regularly get alone with God the Father and pray. And again, we've seen this several times in the first few chapters of of Mark. Jesus made it a priority to pray. Jesus made it a priority to get alone with God and pray. And if if, if he would do that, and so should you. The reality is, you need time every day to pray. And I know this is the broken record part of the message because you're going to hear me say it over and over again. You've been hearing me say it for almost seven years and you'll hear me say it for as long as God has me here. Seven years, 70 years, who knows? But you'll know pastor's going to say something about being in prayer all the time. Right? 
But you need to be in prayer, in regular prayer, every day. You need to get alone with God. You need to listen to Him by reading His Word, and you need to talk to Him by praying every day. And I want you to understand, you're never going to grow to the spiritual maturity that God is calling you to unless that's part of your life. You need to be connected to Him in prayer. But pastor, I don't have time, as Bodhi Bauckham says, help you, if that's what you think. Right? Because hear me, no one is as busy as Jesus was. Right? You've been with me through Mark through now six chapters, and we have seen Jesus is very busy. People are following Him around everywhere He goes. Crowds are like with Him all the time. They're around him outside. He goes in the house. They fill up the house too, right? He, he gets in a boat to go away and get away by himself, and they follow him, right? And he's healing, and he's casting out demons, and he's preaching all the time. In fact, he even said that he's so busy he didn't even take time to eat. But he still makes time to get alone with God and pray. If Jesus can make time, then you absolutely can make time. And you need to, just like Jesus needed to. So Jesus, after dismissing the crowd, he goes up on the mountain and he prays. And then it says, and when evening came, the, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the, on the land. And he saw, he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. One of the things to remember that in, is that Mark is a really fast-moving, action-packed narrative and he really puts a lot of a lot of information in a, in a short amount of verses, but if we're not careful, we can miss details because it's a very condensed gospel. And what we need to realize is that the other gospels record some of the same events. In fact, Matthew and John both record this exact same event, and they have a few more details that kind of can shed some light on what this means and what's actually happening here. Mark, like I said, it says they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. But Matthew says the boat by this time was a long way from land, a long way from land, beaten by the waves for the wind was against them. Okay, this is a picture of the same kind of hurricane force winds that they experienced before. John says the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing and they had rowed about three or four miles. So they're like three or four miles away from Jesus and, and they're not using sails, they're rowing. Okay, so kind of fills out the picture a little bit. And so the overall picture is, is Jesus sends them out and they are met with, with winds and instead of making their way around the shore casually to the other side, they are blown by a fierce wind to the middle of the lake. All right, and once again, they are caught in another life-threatening storm like they were before. The difference being is Jesus ain't on the boat. And the wind is hurricane force, right? And the waves are pitching the boat up and down. And these men are rowing with all of their might to stay alive. And then it says, okay, I want you to see, see this. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea. And he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making, their, making headway painfully. And that the wind was against them. Now think about this. Jesus is on the land. And he's not even on the shore. He is up on a mountain further away from the, the shore. And these men are four miles away in the dark, in the middle of the lake, in the middle of the storm. And it says that Jesus sees them. How do you see a tiny little boat four miles away in the middle of the lake, in the middle of the storm, at night, in the dark? You don't. But it said that Jesus did. How is that even possible? Well, it's possible 
Because he wasn't seeing with his human eyes. He was seeing with his divine eyes. He saw with his omniscience. Jesus seeing the apostles four miles away in the dark points to his omniscience. Remember who Jesus is. Mark declares from the opening verse that, that Jesus is the Son of God. He's God in the flesh. And Mark spends the whole rest of his gospel proving that. And Jesus sees his apostles four miles away in the storm because he is God. He knows where they are. He knows what's happening to them. And this part of the story reminds us of who Christ is. He is the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful God of the universe, lest we forget it. And that really is important for what happens next. Because it says, in about the fourth watch of the night, between, which is really between 3 and 6 o'clock in the morning, he came to them walking on the sea. We really need to stop there for a minute. Because one of the problems I think that we have is we're just so familiar with these Bible stories. I mean, most of us have been hearing these things since we were kids. Like, we're Americans. We kind of hear. It's like, a euphem- it's, 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 like, it's like just an expression. Like, who remembers the movie Tombstone? Like, yeah, one of, my, one of the greatest movies ever, right? And, and, and so why they're, after, like, the scene with Curly Bill, you know, and, and, and they go, hey, where is he? And, like, you know, Doc Hollis go, down by the creek, walking on water, you know? <laughs> because it's, it's just part of our expression, right? But the problem is, is that I think it loses something because, because we fail sometimes to recognize the awesome truth that's being communicated here, right? We fail to slow down and process what's actually, what we're actually hearing. We fail to recognize the magnitude of what the inspired, inerrant word of the living God is telling us. So church, let's slow down here and let's linger just a bit, right? In fact, do me a favor without going to sleep. Just close your eyes for just a minute, okay? Just, just for a minute, I want you to listen to these words. Let me paint this picture for you. Imagine this. It is dark. The wind is blowing, which if you live in Boron, you know what that's like. And the waves are pitching. It's a stormy night, and Jesus is on the land, and he naturally sees, he supernaturally sees his apostles on a little boat, you know, struggling for their lives. And they've been working for like eight hours, because it's, it's eight hours later. And in eight hours, they're rowing, and they're fighting with the wind and the waves, and they're soaked to the bone, and they're terrified, and they're afraid, and, and they're probably mad at each other, right? This is a picture of chaos, and Jesus sees them, right? And then it says, he came to them, and, and hear this, walking on the sea. And Jesus walked on the sea. You can open your eyes now, okay? Jesus Walked on the sea. Right? He, didn't, he wasn't in a boat. Right? He didn't have special like little, little, little ski shoes or anything like that. He didn't swim. He supernaturally walked on the surface of the water. And the thing is, is this isn't a calm sea like we think about all the time. Because sometimes we think about Jesus walking on the water. You, see him, you think about him walking across like a, like a, like a calm, cool pool. Right? This is not... The circumstance, right? The waves are, 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 are like, like chaotic and, and the wind is blowing. And Jesus then is walking calmly on that sea. If there's a more stark contrast in the Bible, I don't know what it is. You have this raging storm, this awesome and terrible force of nature, completely out of control, completely chaotic. It's dark, it's threatening, it's foreboding. And then there's Jesus, the man, God in the flesh, calmly walking on the scene. 
I mean, if you heard this story in the first century for the first time, you'd be like, what? I mean, this, this would leave you speechless. Jesus was walking on the sea. I mean, Jesus walking the water points to his absolute, total, complete authority over all of creation. This is a mind-blowing display of power. We almost, we almost have to forget what we've heard before and hear this again with fresh ears. Jesus, in the middle of the storm, walks to these apostles in the middle of the lake, walking on the surface of the water. That story should shock you. It should make your heart beat a little bit faster, thinking about that, that picture. In fact, it, it maybe even should terrify you a little bit, because this is an awesome display of power. And then it says, he meant to pass by them, but then... They saw him walking on the sea, and they thought it was a ghost and, and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Now, it's, it's kind of funny, but like, there's a lot here, because it, it, notice it says he meant to pass by them. Now, what we need to understand is, is that it's easy for us to think, well, okay, what Jesus was doing then, he was walking, and he meant to get there ahead of them, and then they saw him, and he turned around, because he meant to pass by them, Okay, that's not what's being communicated here. Because the Greek actually gives us this, this sense of he meant to pass by them in order to keep his distance from them so they could see him, right? Because they needed to see him. They, this is important for, this, for their transformation. They needed to see him. He came to hit them the way that he did because he wanted for them to see that this guy was walking on the water. And remember it said that he saw them struggling and he went to them. So he wanted to make sure that they saw him coming. He wanted to make sure that they witnessed with their own eyes that he was walking on the water. And, and, and it says, they saw him. They saw him walking on the sea, every one of them. And, and they thought it was a ghost and cried. Literally, they were screaming, right? For they, for they all saw him and were terrified. So he accomplished exactly what he set out. He wanted them to see him because he, he's going somewhere with this. And so these men were, were probably terrified from the storm to begin with. And then seeing what they think to be a ghost, now they're screaming. That's what the word means. Like they were like screaming to the top of their lungs. Here, there's a video on Facebook where this little kid is on a slide and there's a frog on his arm and he's screaming like because he wants it off. He's scared of this thing, right? And so mom's coming up and she's kind of laughing. And he's like, get it off, get it off. And she touches this thing, and it jumps on his face. And his scream goes from like, there, all, okay, that's kind of like what I'm, what I'm talking about here, all right? It's that kind of thing, all right? And, and now, now what you have to understand is their terror, though, in this moment reveals for us a couple of important things. Number one, it reveals that the apostles still had a superstitious nature. Because there was a superstition in the area that believed that ghosts inhabited the lake. Right? And they believed that if you saw a ghost, that means something bad was going to happen. So naturally, they're scared. They're superstitious in their nature. Even the apostles, early on, had superstitious natures. Which, by the way, is common even among Christians. Christians can be very superstitious a lot too. There are lots of things that Christians believe that aren't really like biblical. They're, they're actually just superstitions. It's like this idea that's floating around. <clears throat> but there are some people who just believe that there's only one English version of the Bible that God had actually inspired, that all the rest of the English versions of the Bible aren't true because only one group of people in history were able to translate Greek to 
You see what I'm saying? It's superstitious. Another superstition is people who, who have never read the Bible, who don't read the Bible, who are not in the Word, say, God said to me, God said to me, God said to me. That's superstition. Because God's, most of what God's going to say to you, he's going to say right here. Right? Another superstition <clears throat> is people who believe that being a Christian is all about being happy all the time. Right? There are people who believe that if you come to faith in Christ, then you're going to experience a supernatural blessing where life is always going to be good and you're always going to be happy. Right? As long as you have enough faith, then your life is going to always be good. And they believe that when you experience hardship and when you experience suffering, that it's an indication that God's mad at you right? and that God is punishing you. That's superstition. Because nowhere in the Bible does it ever say, come to Jesus and, and all your problems will go away and you'll always be happy. It doesn't say that. In fact, the Bible says the opposite. Suffering is part of the normal life. Jesus himself said you know, that, that you will experience tribulation. And, and, and think about it. These are the chosen 12. Okay? These are Jesus' chosen 12. They've seen him face to face. They've been with him for, they've been doing ministry for over a year now. And he equipped them and they went out and they did miracles. Right? They proclaimed the gospel and they, they healed people and, and cast out demons. We, we, we can't do that. Right? And these guys then are not happy in this moment. Right? They're not experiencing happiness right now. In fact, they, it'd, be good to, it'd be safe to say that they're suffering in this moment. They're not living the good life right at this moment. They're going through a difficult time trying to stay alive. So it's, it's, it's safe to say that in this moment they're, they're suffering. So the idea that Jesus always wants to be happy is superstition. And, this, and, and these men, though they are apostles, they're terrified because like us, they have a superstitious nature because they think that they see a ghost. And secondly, their fear reveals a continued lack of understanding. Because even now, even after all that they've been through, they still struggle to understand who Jesus is. In spite of the miracles, in spite of the teaching, in spite of the fact that Jesus himself sent them across the lake, they still don't grasp who he is. And so seeing him walking upon the water, seeing him come towards them, naturally they don't recognize him. They weren't expecting this. And you know what it's like? You're at home. You think you're by yourself. And then you walk down the hallway and somebody pops out of a room, right? It's not that that's unusual. It's just you weren't expecting that, right? This is the same thing. They're not expecting this. They don't understand who Jesus is. And let's be honest. If this was us on the boat, we'd probably be a little bit freaked out too. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now I want you to recognize how Jesus responds to these men and their fear. Because even though that they've been through a lot together, notice that Jesus doesn't berate them. He doesn't criticize them. He doesn't pick on them. He could. But he's not saying, are you kidding me? Really? Really? You're going to act like that now? Like, like you haven't figured it out yet? That you, ha you don't understand who I am? I mean, you guys aren't really that dense. Are you stupid? I mean, have you not learned? No. He sees that they're in horrible fear, right? And, and they're probably, if you think about it, they're probably outside their minds anyway because they've been, they've been working and, and, and striving for eight hours just to stay alive, and they're probably exhausted and weary. And so, no, Jesus doesn't criticize them, but instead he shows them great compassion. Jesus is compassionate to them. What a soft touch he is. 
And notice he says, take heart. Don't be afraid. Now the expression take heart literally means to, to be bolstered from within. Or in other words, Jesus is like saying, be courageous or, or buck up. Right? Don't fear, he also says. Which, by the way, is something the Lord tells us over a hundred times in the Bible. Right? If there's a point that God wants us to understand is, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. So he says, don't fear. But I also want you to notice right, why he says to them to take heart and be courageous. You see, he gives them a reason not to fear. Right? And he says, it is I. Which really should have bolstered their confidence, right? Because Jesus is now here with them. They've been here before when Jesus, and he calmed the storm. The same Jesus calmed the storm before, and his presence definitely should have brought to them you know, some relief and some courage. But what you have to realize is this expression in English misses the point. Because Jesus, when he says, it is I, right? It not only reveals his compassion, but it also reveals his divinity, his divine nature. Because I want you to notice what he says here. When he says the word, it is I, what that is, is that's a rendering of the Greek expression, ego, iemi, which is on your notes there, ego, iemi. And that expression literally means I am. That's what it means. And so this, this text could be rendered in English, take heart, I am, do not be afraid. And the reason why this is important is because Jesus is making a very clear point now. Right? Because this is the exact same expression he will use when Jesus talks to, to in, in the book of John, to the Pharisees and the scribes. They're going to they're gonna say to him that he has a demon. He's like, I don't have a demon. Right? My father is God, but your father is the devil. And they're like... Our father's not the devil. Our father's Abraham. And, and Jesus is going to say, Abraham, he longed to see my day, and he did see my day. And they're going to go, wait a minute. Hold, hang on a second, kid. You're not even 50 years old. Right? How can you, is it possible you have ever seen Abraham? Abraham was around like hundreds of years ago. How is it possible you know and have seen Abraham? And Jesus says to them, before Abraham was, ego, iemi, I am. And you know what they did? They picked up rocks to throw at him to kill him because they knew exactly what he meant. They knew that he was calling himself the great I am, which is the name of God revealed in Exodus. Moses said to God, you want me to go over there and rescue those people? They're not even know who I am. What do I say to them? Who sent me? And God said, I am who I am. And he said, say, to this, say, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Jesus uses the divine name, the same expression of himself, and the Pharisees seek to kill him because they know exactly what he's saying. They think he's blaspheming because Jesus literally is calling himself God. And here, in this moment of their great terror, as he comes walking up on the water that no one else has ever been able to do, he says, take courage, don't be afraid. I am. I am God. And I'm here with you. That's what he's saying. And notice what happens. It says in verse 51, and he got in the boat with him and the wind ceased. Whoo! Talk about a moment, right? Just like before, the wind stops and the waves stop immediately. Just think about this. It's like chaos. It's noisy. It's loud, right? The, the wind and the waves are moving around and it's just, it's, it's like, it, it's, it's the, the epitome of chaos. One second and then it's calm. 
No wind, no waves. It's peaceful. And then notice what it says. And they were utterly astounded. Well, I should hope so. Right? Just think about this. They're fighting for their lives for hours. Being beaten by the wind and the waves. Stressed to the max. And, and, and make matters worse. They think they see a ghost walking on the water. And at the height of their, their fear, Jesus says, Take heart. Don't be afraid. I am God and I'm here with you. Steps on the boat. And the wind and the waves, they stop and suddenly it's over. And even John records and says, immediately the boat was at the land, which it was going. It was in the middle of the lake and now quantum leap, it's at the land. So of course they're utterly astounded. But, but notice what else Mark says. They were astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. You see, everything up to this point, right, these men are just not getting it. Right? And this is the part of the story where we just need to just decide in our hearts, your theology straight about this. Because there is a sense in people and Christians that think, <clears throat> if I will just give enough evidence about Jesus, about the fact that there is a God, then people will turn and put their faith in Christ. There is this sense that if I will just be good enough, and I will just love people enough, and I will just be compassionate enough, and I'll just use the right kind of evidence and the right kind of arguments to share with them, then people will then just see the magic of Jesus in my life and then turn to him and put their faith in Christ. And, and there are people who believe that they just need to show people that, that nature itself testifies about God, and they just need to share with them the historical nature of the resurrection Right? And that that should be compelling evidence enough by itself to change people's hearts and their minds. But the Bible tells us that all creation has already been proclaiming that. That people already know that. People already know that God is real. They just suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And so there's a foundational issue we need to understand and accept, and that is the truth Right? That people on their own cannot accept the truth about God. They can't do it on their own. They already know he exists. Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 1. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men, who, notice this, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. People already know that God exists and they suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And there's not any amount of evidence that's going to change someone's mind if their heart doesn't get changed. And this right here is a clear picture of this. These men are standing here and Jesus is doing these incredible miracles over and over and over again and their hearts were still hard. They're not getting it. They're not understanding it. It's not sinking in. It's not registering to them. And so what we need to understand, there's no amount of information or evidence to change a person's mind until their heart changes. And, that's, and this is the thing that we need to understand. That's why we believe in the depravity of man. That's why we believe in original sin. Because if man was good enough on his own to figure out how he could know God on his own, then all we really have to do is give him a PowerPoint presentation with the evidence, and then they would believe. That we would just simply just convert people by just showing them a presentation on the information. If mankind had, had something in him that allowed him on his own to have an intimate relationship with God, 
right? Then it would just be simply about presenting the evidence and then poof, we'd have a convert right now. And some people believe that that's actually how it is. Because there are people that, that believe that man is not totally depraved. They believe that, that he's marred for sure and that, that he's broken for sure, but he's not totally depraved. That, that mankind is not born spiritually dead. He's born spiritually sick, really, really sick, but he's not spiritually dead. That he just needs simply to hear the truth and he just needs some evidence presented to him and then somehow, someway, by his own free, sovereign choice, he's going to be able to make a decision for God. Right? If that's the truth, then all we'd have to do is present the evidence. We just need to demonstrate over and over again, we just have a running cycle, the truth of God's existence and the proof of the resurrection people would then simply believe. But the problem is, unless a person's heart is changed, they will not believe the evidence. Lots of people today hear the evidence, but they reject it. We see it all the time. In fact, William Lane Craig, who happens to be one of the best-known classical apologists, super, super smart. I mean, like one of the, one of the most brilliant men in the world. He's a, he's a philosopher. He has a conversation with Ben Shapiro, who, by him, who himself is a very brilliant guy, super bright. But he's an Orthodox Jew. And William Lane Craig, he tried to explain to him like without actually like explaining the gospel, he tried to go outside of the Bible and explain to him the external evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he talks about how indisputable it is, and he talks about the nature of the resurrection and, and, and how compelling the evidence is. And do you know what Ben Shapiro said? I just don't find it interesting. You see, it doesn't matter that the facts are true. It doesn't matter that the evidence is compelling. Why? Because Ben Shapiro's heart is hardened to the gospel. That's why. He doesn't care. Right? Because his heart is hard. So if we're going to start with this idea that somehow, right, in some way that mankind has in himself the ability to choose God on his own because he's still spiritually alive enough to be able to do so, then we're going to bump our heads continually when it comes to presenting the gospel because there's always going to be something about our approach that's going to be wrong. We're, just, we're coming at it from the wrong direction assuming that all people need just a little more information. They just need a little more love, a little bit more information, a little bit more in love. And we just need to be better witnesses. And we need to be a little bit greater in, in our, our witnessing. And we need to be more compelling. And we need to be more compassionate. We need to be more understanding and accepting and loving and on down the list. And suddenly, people's salvation becomes about our performance rather than the power of God to save people. But we see clearly here in this text that these men did not get it. It's not like the information wasn't there. I mean, he said, they were there. He said, um, your sins are forgiven. Right? And just so you know that the Son of Man can forgive sins, you're healed. Right? But who else but God can, can heal sin? Who, who can forgive sins? Right? They were there. He said it. He also, they were, they were there when, when he, he healed the woman of an incurable disease. They were there when the little girl was dead and he walks in and he heals the little girl. They were there when he cast out, you know, a legion of demons. They were there for the first time in the boat when the storm came and he calmed the wind and, and the waves. Right? He even gave them the power to heal and cast out demons themselves. Right? And, and, and then they were there when he, they just then, just before then, where Jesus fed 15,000 people with a Lunchable. And they still didn't understand. That's what it says, that they didn't understand about the loaves. They didn't, understand, they didn't get it. And now Jesus, walking on the water, right, walks up and says, I 
am. And finally, finally, they begin to see him. Because he set this up for them. You do understand that, right? That this, this is not an accident. They're not accidentally in a storm, and then Jesus has to come rescue them. They're not accidentally rowing for eight hours. Jesus made them come here. Jesus set this up for them. Why? So they could finally have their hearts changed to see him. Because they still didn't understand. And so Jesus takes this radical step to show them. And now Matthew actually tells us after this, that when he gets in the boat, that they finally begin to understand. Those in the boat, it says, worshipped him, saying, truly you are the son of God. Finally, right? They worship him and say that truly you are the son of God. Jesus had to have been the one to reveal himself to them. He had to have been the one changing their hearts in these circumstances. He had to be the one changing them and shaping them. And, and even still, one of their hearts isn't changing. As we know, that ultimately one of them will fall away. In fact, the very next day, I told you, a lot is going to happen here in a couple of days in, in the life of Jesus. But the very next day, he's going to preach a sermon and almost every one of his followers, his disciples, are going to stop following him. Almost every one of the people, the crowds of people that are following, they're going to stop following him based on one sermon. Praise the Lord, I haven't preached a sermon like that yet. They're going to stop following him, everybody. And then he says to the 12, you're going to walk away too? And and, and Peter's like, "Um, Lord, to whom shall we go? You're the one that has the words of eternal life. Why? Because of that night. They understand. We have believed. We finally believed. Right? And we've come to know that you're the Holy One of God because of this night. And we finally understand to which Jesus reminds them, I chose you. You didn't choose me. And one of you is a devil. What this points us to is the same truth that we've been talking about from the very beginning with the Gospel of Mark. And that is the fact that God is sovereign. Jesus Christ is sovereign over everything including suffering and even salvation. Jesus is 100% completely sovereign and in control in this moment. He is the one that's been sovereignly orchestrating and organizing these things and these events so that that their hearts would be changed so that they could put their faith in him. Which then leads us back to where we started this morning with respect to our worldview about suffering. Because Jesus Christ is sovereign even over that. The thing that we need to realize is that this story is a picture of struggle and suffering. These men were out in the middle of the sea and they were struggling and suffering for eight hours. This is a little story. It's a little picture of life. In fact, this is the symbol that the early church adopted was, was, was the boats with 12 apostles in it. In fact, that's why the earliest symbol for Christ wasn't a cross. It was an anchor. Because this story, it's the idea that in the midst of your suffering, that Christ is with us and we can hold on to him no matter what. That we can tether our lives to him and hang on for dear life because of him. And the church has always, from the earliest times, been pictured as a boat in a stormy sea with Jesus on board. The story is a picture of of life. And And it has a lot to teach us about suffering from a biblical worldview. Not a secular worldview, but a biblical worldview. And the first thing we see here is suffering and hardship are simply just part of life. Even the Christian life. You set yourself on a journey 
You wake up one day, you're, you're going about your own thing, you're going to work, you're doing whatever you do, and then suddenly you find yourself being hunted down by the storms of life, and then you find that now you're fighting for your life. Or you're fighting for your marriage. Or your health. Or your sanity. Or you're fighting for your children. Or your job or your faith. Suffering is an inevitable part of life. We live in a fallen, broken world with fallen, broken people. And every single one of us will experience at times great happiness, but we will also experience times of deep and terrible suffering. In fact, some of you might be going through suffering right now. And if you are, my heart is with you and my prayers go to God for you. But we must not think that suffering is just some oddity of life. We must not think that suffering is just because God is mad at us for something that we did. Suffering is just a byproduct of the life that, that we're living. In fact, Peter tells us, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fire trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. Don't be like, I never expected that ever to happen. He says, but rejoice. Hear this. Rejoice insofar as, as you share Christ's suffering that you also may also rejoice and be glad when, when his glory is revealed. What he's saying is, your hope isn't in the fact that you're not going to suffer. Your hope is in him. Suffering is a normal part of life and we should expect it. Now, we shouldn't hope for it. That's just stupid. Right? Like None of us are like, okay, I wonder what kind of suffering I can get involved in today. You don't go around looking for suffering. But we should expect the fact that it's going to happen. It's inevitable. Secondly, we need to understand that suffering is ordained and allowed by God. And this is the truth that a lot of people don't like. But notice Jesus made them get in the boat to leave. And the word made here in the Greek is emphatic. It is, it is actually a very strong, forceful word. It means to compel with force. They didn't want to go. He made them go. And he knew exactly what, what they were getting themselves into. He knew that they were going to be going into a storm. He knew that they were going to be terrified and afraid. He knew that they were going to be exhausted and physically wore out. He knew that they were going to experience physical pain. He knew that they were going to suffer. In fact, he sent them. Hear me. He sent them there to suffer and experience difficulty. He ordained for that suffering. Now, before you say, well, wait a minute, God would never, ever do that. Do me a favor. Before you say that, take some time and read your Bible. And in fact, if you want a place to start, then go to the book of Job. Start right there. And then, and then come talk to me. Because God absolutely did ordain and allow his suffering. And, and if, if that didn't convince you, then go ahead and read the Gospels, especially the part about Jesus you know, being arrested and being tortured and then dying on the cross. Right? Because God absolutely did ordain his horrific, terrible suffering. Suffering that's greater than we could probably even imagine. Right? And many people will say, well, you know, I just can't believe in a God that allows bad things to happen to, to good people. Well, R.C. Sproul says it this way. He says, well, that's only happened one time in history. Only one time in history did, did a good person have something bad happen to them they didn't deserve. And that's when Jesus was killed on the cross. The question that we should be asking isn't, why do bad things happen to us? The question we should be asking is, given our sinful nature and who we are, why does anything good even happen to us? Why does God give us his grace and his mercy upon us? 
God is gracious to us beyond measure, even in our times of suffering. The third thing we need to understand is our suffering always has a purpose. It always does. And that means our suffering, if we trust in Christ, is never in vain. Christian, that should bolster your hope right now by itself. That your suffering is never in vain. No matter where we go, no matter what we go through, no matter how terrible things are, God can and does use the worst part of our circumstances for his glory and our good. That is why Paul confidently can say, and we know, that's what he says, and we know for a fact, and we know that for those who, who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We know it. We know it all the way down to the, in, into our hearts. We know. He also says, so that we do not lose heart, though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction. Hear that. This light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. Our suffering has purpose to it, even if you can't see it in the moment. And fourth, suffering prepares our hearts. And this is a truth that we see here. These men were with Christ, and they'd watched him do incredible things, but their hearts were not fully changed. Jesus sent them in this storm instead of these circumstances that brought about real change in their hearts. It was in that moment you know, of fear and pain and suffering that they finally were in a position in their hearts to be able to see Christ for who he was. And, and, at the same, and, and it's the same thing that happens to us. My brother did not see the need for Christ until he was in the throes of his addiction and nearly lost everything. He suffered greatly and he was at the worst part of his life before, before he, would, he could ever see the glory of Christ and repent and believe. And by the same token, my mom, she didn't fully embrace Christ until she was suffering and dying from brain cancer. And as much as I, I prayed for her, God did not heal her. But in her suffering and in her pain and in the chemotherapy and in the radiation and in her slow march to her death, God used her suffering to change her heart and to draw her close. And the day that she died, she knew she was going to die. Because she asked my dad, the doctors had already said, and she said, am I going to die? And he said, yes. And my wife asked her, are you afraid? She says, no. Because she knew where she was going. She had trusted in Christ. Right? God used her suffering to prepare her heart to meet him. Fifth. Suffering teaches us dependence upon Christ because nothing reveals to us how out of control our life really is and how unsovereign we are than our suffering. Suffering reveals our brokenness, our weakness, and our inabilities. It reveals our need for, for the sovereign grace and, and, and the mercy of Christ. It reveals how much we truly need him and his love and his help and his support. It, it brings home the truth that, that he is the vine and we are the branches and we can do nothing apart from him. In this story, we come face to face with the fact right, that these men were completely dependent upon Christ. And the final lesson we can take from this story is that we're never alone in our suffering. 
Christ promises the Holy Spirit that people you trust in Him, He is with you. And that means wherever you go, God is with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And no matter what you go through, He is with you. And Christ Himself came to the earth to enter into our suffering, to come alongside of us. Now with that, let me help you just apply this really quick. Three quick applications. And the first one is if you're suffering and you're a believer, then draw closer to Christ today. Because He is your hope. He is your anchor. He is your rock. He is your salvation. And He will see you through. Secondly, if you're not a believer, suffering, right? There's only one hope that you have, and that's Jesus Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn to him and put your faith in him today, and he will help you. He will grow you, and you will experience joy in the deepest, darkest parts of the world. And then finally, if you are not suffering and you are a believer, then we need to be like Christ here. We need to be compassionate to those who are suffering. We need to show extraordinary compassion We need to make a point to love people and come alongside them and be the hands and feet of Jesus. And what we need to do is be mindful of the fact that there are some people just like this young girl who don't see any purpose or hope through suffering. Someone who needs someone like you to show them the hope and the love that are found in Christ that transcends all understanding and all suffering. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.